Well, we're glad you're here this morning. We're in the book of Nehemiah. I would encourage you to uh, turn there. Uh, It's in your Old Testament. And um, we're going to be there for the next several weeks as we walk through this story. I'll give you some background here in a moment uh, about the book of Nehemiah. But before I do that, let me pray for us really quickly. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. It's an incredible, miraculous gift, well-preserved. No book like it on the face of the planet and it's preservation. Lord, to to throw out your word that you've preserved would be to throw out any ancient text that we've ever found. And so, Lord, we trust you. We trust your preservation. We thank you for the way that you use us. You use the people before us to to speak your words. You could have chosen to do it a different way, but instead you, you chose to use us. And so this morning, I pray that you would use me to speak your words, not my own, but the words that you have for us this morning. And may we take them to heart. May we look for you in them, not just a better way to live, but who the giver of actual life is. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, So the book of Nehemiah, our series in the book of Nehemiah is called Trouble and Disgrace. Trouble and Disgrace. And uh, we'll see in a minute why we call that. A lot of people use the, the word rebuild. You'll see the word build or rebuild a lot in the book of Nehemiah, but The reason they're having to rebuild is because of trouble and disgrace that they're facing as a people, and then the end of the book actually ends with them in trouble and disgrace again. So they start off in trouble and disgrace, they fix their problems, so to speak, and then they end up back in trouble and disgrace again. And so that's why we've kind of picked that topic, and I think it's a fitting topic for where we're at today. We're in a position in our world, in our country where, where it just feels like we're in trouble and there's constant, like, of disgracing of one another. Like, that's all there is. And it seems like it's a mess. And if you remember where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah fits well with some other books, namely Esther, okay, the book of Esther, Ezra, the book of Ezra, and then also a couple of prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, possibly Malachi as well. And all of these books are kind of in this similar time frame. And if you remember, God told his people, we'll look at this in a minute, he made a covenant with his people, Israel, and he said, if you'll be my bride, if you'll be my people, then, then I will rescue you, I will help you in the midst of your trouble and in the midst of your disgrace. He gave them the sacrificial system, <clears throat> he gave them protection, he gave them things, and he said, my name will dwell in the city of Jerusalem, in the land of Judea. In other words, he gave himself a, a place where he said, this is where I'm going to keep you and watch over you. God's people didn't listen. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied to them and said, you need to turn. There was a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was defeated first because of their wickedness. God said, I'm going to defeat you. Isaiah prophesies The book of Isaiah tells them, you're, you're in trouble. There's trouble coming. You're going to be disgraced. You better repent before it's too late. And the northern kingdom said, nah, we're good. Assyria comes in and slaughters them. When that happens, you would think that the southern kingdom would look at that and be like, oh my goodness, Look at what happened to them because they wouldn't listen to God. How about we listen to God? They didn't. They took pride in the fact that the northern kingdom got smashed and now we're the only ones. Aren't we awesome? As a result of that, God, through Jeremiah, said, I'm going to send someone in to discipline you. 
And they sent the Babylonian Empire in, and it led to 70 years of slavery in Babylon, in Persia, for God's people. That's what happened. 70 years of slavery. And he told the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, if you treat my people well, I will extend your kingdom. If you don't treat my people well, because I'm disciplining them that right now, and that doesn't give you the right to give them more trouble than I tell you to give them, or to disgrace them more than I tell you to, then I'm going to annihilate you. That's exactly what happens. Persia comes in and annihilates Babylon. See, we look at world history, and the history that we learn, we don't understand that much of the history we see, God prophesied and talked about before it happened, and he laid it out and said, this is why it's happening, because I'm active in your world. There is trouble and disgrace all around you, and I'm trying to get your attention through it. And God's people now find themselves through Ezra after 70 years of captivity. Ezra was allowed to go back to Jerusalem exactly 70 years after they were put into slavery. They are allowed to go back and they are allowed to rebuild the temple of God. And Ezra leads the people with King Zerubbabel, okay, who was of the line of David, and they go back and they rebuild the temple. Remember, that makes, we looked at Ezra a couple of years ago. We've been preaching through the entire Bible, right? We'll be through the entire scriptures in 13 years, hopefully. We're, we're on track. When we preached through Ezra, when we looked at Ezra, you have to remember, God asked them to build the temple before they rebuilt their social order, their cities, their walls, their fields, that's entirely backwards to our understanding. You see, we keep talking about how we can rebuild things socially so that then we can make things better for people spiritually. God is all about, you need to consider your spiritual condition, and then once you've done that and dealt with that, see what I do with your social condition. It's the opposite of what we're being told. Now, does that mean we don't care about social concerns? No, not at all. We're called to care. When Jesus came, he cared about people, but he cared more about people's spiritual well-being than he did just about their physical well-being. Every time he healed someone, every time he did something, he always challenged them spiritually with what he did. When he saved the woman out of adultery, when she was to be stoned for what she had done, although they didn't drag the guy in and all the guys that were with her to stone him, I mean, think about that. Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They all dropped their stones and walked away because they realized, wait, he's going to start pointing out our sins <laughs> if we take out her sin. He didn't look at her and say, great, have a good life, do whatever you want. He looked at her and said, don't sin anymore. Get your life right before God and love him and surrender to him so that you're not in this same place of trouble and disgrace again and I'm not here to save you. You see, that's exactly where we find Nehemiah. Ezra has rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah is still a slave. He's been a slave his entire life. He didn't get to travel back with the people of God because he was a he was a king slave, and, and he was important to the king, so he wasn't released to be able to travel back with his people when the king of Persia sent people back to Jerusalem and to Judea. He's trapped. 
He's stuck in the circumstances he's in, and I can't imagine you, but I would be looking at God and going, why are my people getting to go back, and I'm still stuck here being a slave for this wicked king? And that's where we find Nehemiah. It's about a decade after Ezra has gone to rebuild the temple. The temple's been complete. It's now been a decade, and it's a mess. And you think, well, God said you were going to go back after 70 years, and then revival was going to break out, and great things were going to happen. And it's like, nope, they're still in a mess. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah isn't anyone special. Nehemiah is just a slave. That's all he is, is a slave in a wicked kingdom, not of his own choice. He's stuck. And when you see his heart, it should challenge you to look at the fact of whatever circumstances you're stuck in and have a heart like Nehemiah to lead people like Nehemiah led people. So we pick up the book. Today what we're going to look at as our title is Mourned and Strengthened. Mourned and Strengthened. Can I just tell you, we don't know what to mourn about or how to mourn anymore as a culture. Everyone is offended and mad and cries about everything today. We do. We've not been taught to mourn for the things that God says to mourn for. We get more upset and mourn more over little piddly things than we do like the reality of our world and people's lives. By the way, we're not much different than the people of the Bible, i.e. Jonah. Do you remember the prophet Jonah? Prophet Jonah mourned. He was so sad that God took his little plant away that was giving him shade, and he was so sad that God saved all the Assyrians when he wanted them to be annihilated. Jonah's heart was more upset over his own life and a focus on himself than he was when he looked around at others and the world around him. And that's where we find ourselves today. And then strengthened. How do we get strengthened? What is supposed to strengthen us? See, we don't even, we just say I need to be stronger and I need to not be so sad. No, maybe you need to be sad. Mourning is a good thing. We're going to look at that in a moment. But what are you sad about and what are you being strengthened by? We pick up the story, Nehemiah 1 says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev in the twelfth year, When I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanai, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant. The remnant is the group of people that returned. A lot of people, a lot of the Jews chose to stay in Persia instead of return to Judah. You want to know why? Because it was easier in Persia. Why would you want to return to a place that has nothing? It's been leveled. The temple is completely leveled to its foundation. The city walls are down. It's an absolute disaster. Why would you want to go back to that when you live in New York? When you've got free public transportation, when you've got everything you could want, why would you want to go back and rebuild that mess Because, hey, I wasn't responsible for it. It's not my fault it got all leveled. And I made a pretty good life for myself here in Persia. And so there's a lot of Jews that decided I'm not going back to rebuild. Some scholars believe that's exactly why in the book of Esther, 
The Jews were threatened to be killed. It was part of God's discipline and judgment of those that wouldn't return. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a good idea. And then he says the remnant that has survived the exile. In other words, many of them died as slaves. Many of them died in captivity. It was awful. Oh, and by the way, God did it. Let me just explain this to you. You cannot believe in a God. You cannot believe that there's a higher power and all those things. You realize that doesn't solve any of the problems and the mess that we still have. Well, I just couldn't believe in a God that would allow his people to be enslaved, that would enslave people. Okay, that's fine, but you realize that like every government has enslaved people since the beginning of time. So do you believe in no government at all? We should have no government, no authority. We should just do what we want. Oh, by the way, if you do that, you're going to end up enslaving someone. Because you're going to use people for your own advantage because you're making yourself God. You're giving yourself the authority to say what's right and wrong instead of a God who has the authority to say what's right and wrong. Oh, and by the way, these people deserve this because God warned them multiple times, this is going to happen to you. I'm going to let, I'm going to take my hand of protection. God didn't shackle them. All God did was go, I'm not protecting you anymore. Now experience what the world experiences every single day. No more protection. I'm taking my hands off. And see, that's all that really has to happen if we really truly believe that we're just kind of little children. Have you ever, I tell you what, go to a daycare and without permission, let all the two-year-olds run out the door and go into the streets and see what happens. They're going to they're gonna do stupid stuff. They're going to get killed. When you remove the protection of the walls and the doors and the authorities around them that are trying to help them understand the world they live in and the dangers of it, they'll die. And God has been warning people since the beginning. You live in a broken world of your own choosing, of your own sin, and I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to show you you don't care. And so here Nehemiah is. He's serving in the temple. He's serving in the fortress of Susa. By the way, the fortress of Susa is where Esther had her beauty pageant to become queen. So that this fortress of Susa, this is the place where the whole book of Esther kind of happens. And this month of Chislev is about the month of November, December. It's winter time. And look at Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah is so concerned about others. He's got a terrible circumstance, and they could have come back and him been like, I do not want to hear what's going on. Because I'm stuck here as a slave. Well, all of them got to return, and it's probably going great, and they can worship God and serve in the temple. They can make sacrifices, but I'm still here with this stupid pagan guy that I'm with. Nehemiah could have had that heart, but Nehemiah didn't. Nehemiah said, What's going on? I know we rebuilt the temple. So tell me more. What's happening? Because I'm excited, man. God has to be doing some great stuff now that we have a temple and we're worshiping him again. And man, I can't wait to hear what's happening. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Many of us, we'd kind of smile at that. 
<laughs> now they get a taste of what I'm feeling, having to be stuck here in slavery. And yeah, you thought it was going to go well going back there to Jerusalem. And yeah, now you get a little bit of taste. It ain't, it ain't that great, is it? Ha ha. See, but, but Nehemiah, that's not Nehemiah's heart. You see, Nehemiah's heart is this. He goes on to hear, and the guys tell him, they say, Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart for his God and his people is amazing. You know his name means Yahweh comforts? That's what Nehemiah means. His name means Yahweh, the great I am, comforts. And Nehemiah isn't comforted right now. But God's going to use him to comfort his people. And Nehemiah, when he heard these words, it said he just sat down like, what happened? I thought they were doing well. I thought we were going to change things. I thought, you know, we got the right person, Zerubbabel and Ezra were back, and they were going to make things right, and we elected the right guy. It's going to, and then we're in bigger trouble and disgrace. The walls are torn down. Listen, in this day, if you didn't have walls and gates, that meant people just came in and took stuff. It'd be like if you didn't have doors on your house at home. And you went to sleep at night wondering, uh, hope nobody comes in and takes the TV. We're upstairs locking the door. <laughs> like Nehemiah sees this and he recognizes too that the fact that Jerusalem is in ruins when they have a temple says this to the world. Here God's a joke. You got a temple and you can't even, you can't even have a city. You don't even have walls. You got nothing to show for how great your God is. What a joke your God is. Ha! He's so strong and mighty and you got nothing. And Nehemiah feels the weight of this and he falls. And listen, he doesn't immediately say, I've got to do something about this. That's not what he does. He immediately starts fasting, praying, and mourning. He is broken. He's like, I thought we were supposed to go back and change things. I thought this was the moment for the nation to... And he is just mourning. He is torn apart. By the way, Nehemiah is in a job that by mourning, it could get him fired. Oh wait, not just fired, killed. You are not allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. It'll cost you. I know there are many of you in this room who have been a waiter or a waitress. Some of you are waiters and waitresses now. Try doing your job this week, crying the whole time you're going to the tables and waiting on tables. And mourning. I'm sorry, what would you like to eat? <laughs> and see what the response of your boss is. He will probably either send you home or fire you. If it goes on long enough, you come back the next day, you're sad, and the next day, and the next day, you're definitely getting, you need help. We'll send you to a counselor, goodbye. In this day, you got killed. It was your job to be sure that when you presented yourself to the king, that you brought goodness and happiness, not a mess with you. And so Nehemiah is in real trouble because he's trying to control his emotions, but he's stuck 
in this place of mourning and brokenness. You ever been there? You go to the family gathering and you know it's like I'm going to have to put on a show. I'm going to have to pretend. And then people recognize something's off and they keep asking you the same question. Are you okay? Are you? And you're just like, just leave me alone. I'm just trying to get through the next two hours with you all. Just stop. It's exactly where Nehemiah finds himself. He is, he is broken. He is mourning. Now here's the encouragement that Jesus gives about mourning. Jesus in his first official long sermon in Matthew 5, 1 through 7, said when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down, just like Nehemiah. He just sat down. He's like, we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to speak with you. His disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, the poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. No, the poor in spirit get murdered. They get slapped around. Jesus is like, no, no, you don't understand. Those who are truly poor in their spirit, they're no longer looking for something in the world to save them. They're looking for God to save them. And that's why the kingdom of heaven becomes theirs because they are done with this kingdom and they're like, I know there's another kingdom and I'm gonna go after that one because this one's trash. And then it says, once you do that, you're probably going to realize the kingdom around you is in such a mess and you're going to realize that other people are in a mess and so when you're poor in spirit, your natural response is to do what Nehemiah did, which is mourn. You're going to mourn. And then it says, if you mourn, Jesus said, you're blessed. You're happy if you mourn. The word blessed there means happy. So the poor in spirit are happy. The mourning are happy. No, we're mourning. (laughs) Then he says, for they will be comforted. Yahweh them, Nehemiah. You see, we, we want comfort without having to be poor in spirit and mourn. We just want comfort. I just want easy. I don't want any problems. No trouble, no disgrace. I just cruise through life. Leave me alone. I die. I get to the pearly gates and God's like, you tried pretty hard, buddy. You come on in. That is not our book. All the other religions tell you that. All the other religions tell you it's about works. It's about if you do enough goods to outweigh your bads, then when you get to heaven, you kind of get in on a curve and God will grade you and like get. Our book says nobody gets into heaven based on works. It doesn't matter how many good things you do, you cannot make up for the curse and the penalty that's on you. However, God gave a savior. He gave his son to pay the price I owed. He didn't let anybody slide. He let no justice slide. He put justice on himself. There is no other book and no other God presented in all of the world like that. Don't believe me? Check me on it. It's called grace. His unmerited favor. You can't earn it. He extends it and says you accept it or you don't accept it. You accept who I am or you don't. And then it says... The gentle are blessed. Because see, once you're poor in spirit, and once you begin to mourn and see the world around you in the right way, you begin to be a little more gentle with how you live life. Remember, the word gentle doesn't mean what we think it means in this day. God was very gentle not to kill everyone like he did with Noah. See, God doesn't gentle to be wrathful. He's gentle and wrathful all at the same time. Because he's God. He doesn't stop doing love to do justice. He's loving and just all at the same time. 
You see, that's the crazy part, is he says this, and then it says, look, they will inherit the earth. See, what we're going to see in Nehemiah is Nehemiah gets to go back and rebuild. He gets an inheritance. We're still reading about him and the inheritance that God did through him. And then it says, those who hunger and thirst for what's right, for righteousness, are blessed because they will be filled. The merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. Listen, mercy doesn't mean you let people slide. Mercy is you you deserve this and you're not going to get it. You should be very thankful. That's merciful. Mercy is not just do whatever you want. That's unloving. That's uncaring. That's not merciful. And then he goes on to say this. Jesus says, the pure in heart are happy for they will see God. We can't make ourselves pure. Only God can make ourselves pure. That's why Nehemiah is on his face weeping and crying because he knows there's no hope if God doesn't come through. And then it says, the peacemakers are blessed for they will be called the sons of God. Remember, to make peace sometimes mean you, means you have to go to war. That, that's, that's just throughout the Bible. And then it goes and says, those who are persecuted for the right thing. Many of us are persecuted because we're stupid. That's not persecution, that's just stupid, okay? But he says, if you're persecuted for doing what is right before God, you should find happiness in that, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. So he says, the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, and then he ends with persecution, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And that's exactly what we begin to see with Nehemiah. It goes on and says this, Nehemiah's prayer is amazing. This is a prayer you should break apart and look at. His prayer, given his circumstances and the mess that he's in as a slave, is like super humbling for me. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God, that's what we just sang about, great are you, Lord, great are you, Yahweh, who keeps his gracious covenant. It's a covenant of grace. The Jews didn't deserve to be his people. We don't deserve to be his people. You can't earn a marriage with him. You can't buy him off. You can't pay him. No, that's not the way relationships work. He just extends his love and grace to you, and we have to decide how we're going to respond to that. So it's a gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. By the way, if you love him, you'll keep his commands. Why? Because you want to love him. It's a circle, right? Like, well, I want to show him love, so I'll do what he says. You don't do what he says to try to get him to love you. That's called stalking. Don't do it. He goes on and he says, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer. He says, I'm your servant. I'm not Artaxerxes' servant. That's the king he's serving at the time. I'm I am your servant who happens to be a slave, who happens to be in this position, who happens to be in this job, who happens to be in this mess. That's just who I am. And then he says, now that I pray to you day and night. How many of you have ever been in a place where you have prayed day and night? And I don't mean pray for yourself, because Nehemiah, we're going to read this prayer, what he prays day and night has nothing to do with him. Nothing. And then it says, for your servants. He goes, I'm praying day and night because I see your servants, the Israelites, the remnant. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both myself, I, and my father's house have sinned. 
Nehemiah hasn't done anything. He can't travel back because he's stuck in slavery. They traveled back and now they're not being obedient to God. And Nehemiah's like, I get what the problem is. I can't fix this problem if we don't repent. So I'm going to be the chief repenter right now and I'm just going to repent and pray on behalf of myself, my family, and the sins that we've committed. And I can't even go to the temple to make sacrifices for those sins because I'm stuck here. But I believe you're a gracious God and I'm going to tell you how great you are and how desperate I am, my father's house, all the way back, we are desperate for you. I mean, he's not even gotten to the problem yet. He's just like, I realize the trouble and disgrace that we're in is because we will not see you and see you as you've revealed yourself. It goes on, Exodus says this. This is the covenant God made with his people. This is why they're in the mess. It says, now if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. In other words, God said, I'm going to raise you up to be an example to the world. That's why they're in this mess. Because God said, I'm going to raise you up to be an example. And if you're an obedient example, then I'm going to say, that's what it looks like to obey me. If you're disobedient, you're going to have the wrath of me on your head, the discipline of me, so I can look at the world and say, I don't let sin slide, not even from my own kids. Because I'm a holy, righteous God. And he looks and he says, these are the words that you say to the Israelites. After Moses came back and he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him, then all the people responded together. Look at this. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. These people said they would do what God wanted and then they didn't. And then they got upset that God held them accountable to what they said they would do. That's the world we live in today. I don't know if you know that. We live in a world where there is no accountability. I am my own accountability. I heard this week in a Senate hearing, happened to be going through, looking at stuff on Facebook, and in a Senate hearing this week, a medical doctor, 10-year medical doctor said, that her, this was the words of this doctor, that whenever anyone, specifically a woman, makes a choice, that that choice becomes the morally right choice no matter what the choice is. And she was talking about abortion, this doctor was. And the Senate guy standing behind the panel asked, well, but when is the age of viability for a fetus? Like, like at what point do you not get to kill like this thing that's living? At, at what point do we say, no, we're not gonna do that? Like once it's born, like, and she said, no, 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 no. A woman's choice is a woman's choice, and whenever she chooses, whatever she chooses, it is the right moral choice, and I'm going to back that up. And so he said, so you're telling me that if a two-year-old is not viable, they can't live apart from the mom, then you can kill the child. Because it's not a viable child yet. Like, if you turned a two-year-old loose on the world, they're not going to last a day. They're dead, right? They're not. They're going to be dead. So they're not viable yet. Her answer, again, tripling down was when a woman chooses, it's her right to choose, and that is, becomes the morally right choice, and I will back her up on it. That's where we are today, folks. Like it or not, that's our world. No one has the right to tell me what to do. No one has authority over me. I am my own God, and I want other people to be their own gods, and it is killing us. 
And Nehemiah sees that it's killing his people. And God said, you've got to make a covenant with me. You've got to decide who's going to be your authority and who you're going to listen to. God is the one that gets to tell us the place where he chooses to have his name dwell. Do you see that in Exodus? He says, I'm going to tell you the place. Look at what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah, when he was prophesying that all this was going to happen, said this. He says, look, the days are coming. This is about 100 years before this, not quite 100, probably about 80, 90 years before Nehemiah. Jeremiah says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant, so that's the old covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant they broke even though I had married them. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah is prophesying about what Jesus did. That Jesus came and paid the price so that we could have his heart. The Holy Spirit could come and fill us up. Look at what 1 Corinthians says. 1 Corinthians 6 19 through 20 says, don't you know that your body is a temple? It's the place God now wants to dwell of the Holy Spirit who is in you if you have a relationship with Jesus, whom you have from God. It's a gift. It's a gracious gift. You can't earn the Spirit. You can't buy the Spirit. There's a guy in Acts who tries to buy the Spirit, by the way. He's a sorcerer, and he was cursed for it. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Body being your own personal body and body being the church body. And then Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So Nehemiah, looking at the old covenant, sees Jerusalem and Judah and says, that's horrible. Under the new covenant, we don't look to go back and take Jerusalem and Judah. By the way, we had the crusades that tried to do that. That's not biblical. The new covenant says, that's gone. Jesus will bring his place back. We won't. We're not going to make a utopia on this earth. We're waiting for Jesus to bring his utopia. That covenant is closed. God died for that covenant. Now there's a new covenant. And in the new covenant, we trust him, we walk with him, and we're waiting for the day when he comes to get us and he brings his reign back on earth. I don't have to go back and rebuild Jerusalem today. I don't have to go back and rebuild Judah. There's a new covenant. God moved the place for us. Does that mean I don't respect Jerusalem, respect Judah, understand? No, I need to understand the importance of that place because the Bible says he's coming back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah goes on to say, they are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Again, you did the work. Your people didn't earn this. They didn't deserve this. You said, I'm calling you, will you respond? That's what he says to all of us. Will we recognize that God's hand is stronger than anything else? And then he says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Most people are running around trying to make a name for themselves. Nehemiah could have, could have tried to make a name for himself, and it's obvious Nehemiah is about making a name for God. 
He recognizes his name means Yahweh comforts, and so I'm going to be Yahweh comforts to people. That's who I'm going to be. And then he says, give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Here is Nehemiah praying this prayer. He is crying out for God's mercy and he knows that he's gonna have to go before the king and he's gonna have to be honest about what he's dealing with and he's gonna have to like confess that and he's gonna go before the king and he's like, I don't wanna die but I'm willing to die because I just, I have to talk to the, I, I know this is gonna happen. I know when I go to the table and I'm crying, they're gonna ask what's wrong with you. That's where Nehemiah is. And he says, at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. That's every meal he's got to see this guy. Every meal. Every time he wants a drink, Nehemiah's got to take a drink or have his people, because he may have been the chief cupbearer and he has people underneath him. That's probably was his position. He was kind of the leader who watched the grapes be grown, watched them be transported so that there was no poison added along the way. Nehemiah was probably the chief cupbearer, which means he had all his minions below him that he organized and did everything with, most likely. Either way, it was on him to be sure that he tasted that drink to see if he died before it got to the king. How would you like that to be your job? How would you feel if God gave you that job to do for a wicked king who had your people enslaved? That your job every day is to be like, I'm, I'm still alive, you can drink now, king. Every single meal, every, like, that's your job for this guy. And that's exactly where Nehemiah is. And not only that, let's pause for a second. How would you like to be the chief cupbearer when your number one holiday, Passover, had multiple cups you would drink to remember the blood that was shed for your sins? And every time you took a drink of wine, you had the reminder that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. God passed over our sins and saved us. He would do that again. Here I am drinking this wine for this pagan king. Where is my God? Why hasn't he come through? Now, Nehemiah says, give me favor today. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus, when he was talking about the cup, he said, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. This was at the Last Supper. This was on Passover. And he said to them, this is my body, which I is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It's shed for you. And he would have drank from the cup and then passed it to everyone else to drink. You see... This idea of the cup and the wine and the representation of the blood was in the Old Testament just as much as it is in the New. And Jesus says this new covenant is not about Passover anymore. This new covenant is about me and actually passing over your sins and me coming to make my home with you. It's no longer about Jerusalem. This is beautiful. He goes, I'm going to choose to gather you to this place. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it's amazing how the prayer he tells his disciples to pray is so similar to Nehemiah's. Look at this. It says, therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Isn't that what Nehemiah was praying? You're great, Lord. We're not. We've messed this up. We need you to come. Hear our cry. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I, I pray that you help me to do your will. I pray that this king I'm getting ready to talk to would, would do what you would want him to do. I pray that your people would do your will. And then he says, give us today our daily bread. Lord, just sustain me one more day. And forgive us our debts. Remember, he prayed, forgive me, forgive my fathers, forgive us as we've forgiven our debtors, as I forgive this wicked king, as I forgive the mess that I'm in. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. He says, please deliver me when I go into this king. This is a model prayer of how our hearts are supposed to be before God. It goes on in Nehemiah 2, and it says this, during the month of Nisan, does anybody know what happens in the month of Nisan? Passover. This is three to four months later after Nehemiah said, give me favor today. He's been praying now for three to four months, fasting, weeping, trying to control his emotions, trying to the mess that he knows his people are in and, and the, the mess and, and he's, he's doing his best to serve and to seek God and to wait for the right time and, and now it's the month of Passover and he's the cupbearer and he has to go in on the 20th year of King Artaxerxes it's 20 year anniversary when the wine was set before him I took the wine and gave it to the king I had never been sad in his presence Nehemiah is looking at the Passover cup and he can't take it anymore. He's looking at the cup and he's like, I'm presenting this cup. It should be the cup that I'm doing in Jerusalem for my God. This should be me celebrating Passover with my people. And instead I'm putting a cup of wine in front of a wicked king. I can't do this anymore. And he breaks down. This could have cost him his life. So this king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? Because again, if he was sick, he wasn't allowed to taste the cup. That'd be bad. You made the king sick, then you get killed. This is nothing but depression, the king says. The king looks at him and says, this is nothing but you being selfish and thinking about yourself and being all depressed about your circumstances it's not going well in this moment. And that's why it says, I was overwhelmed with fear, Nehemiah says, and I replied to the king, may the king live forever. I recognize God has put you in authority and I have no idea why. <laughs> but you're in authority? Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He says, King, I, I can't hold back anymore. This is Passover. This is the highest holy moment of when my people were delivered from slavery and I'm your slave, we're still enslaved, and we're not obeying our God. I'm broken over this. Can I just tell you, we need more Christians that are like this in our world today. Most of us are just trying to get through it and have comfort and security and ease and God is looking for people that will be broken that will stand up, and when people ask what's wrong, we'll look at them and say, I'm sick of a world of brokenness and people disobeying God. I just can't take it anymore. It's, it's breaking me inside. That doesn't mean you walk around all sad. Remember, the Beatitudes are you're happy if you're poor. You're happy if you mourn. You're like, that's where true joy comes from, is understanding the world I live in and how to respond. 
It goes on and says this in Nehemiah. Then the king asked me, oh, well then what is your request? Hallelujah. I mean, that's like, like this is a moment. Like the king it looks at him, he's like, you're depressed. And, and then Nehemiah's like, well, how can I do this when my people are in turmoil? And he goes, what is your request? Notice, Nehemiah doesn't immediately say, well, I'd like a new house and a TV, and I'd like this, and I'd like that. No, Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. You see Joseph do this in the Bible. You see all kinds of people that do this. They pause like, oh my goodness, I just got the favor of the king. I need to pray and ask what I need to say. I don't, in other words, Nehemiah didn't come with an agenda already laid out. He's like, Lord, I don't know what to do now. Okay, what do we do? And it says, I prayed and he answered, if it pleases the king. Look, he says, if it's up to you, if your authority, and if your servant has found favor with you. In other words, if you're okay with this and if you think I've served you well. He's serving a wicked king as a slave and this is his attitude. And then he says, look. Send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so I may rebuild it. Wait, you see, I'm a king of Persia. I'm building Persia. I'm not building other kingdoms because if you build other kingdoms, they typically attack you. I'm trying to keep kingdoms down, right, so that I can kind of be in charge. I'm not into rebuilding stuff for people. I'm into building Persian stuff. Look what happens. The king, with the king, this is, don't overlook this, with the queen seated beside him, underline that in your Bible, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. Why is it so significant that the king was seated beside the queen? Or the queen was seated beside the king? Do you remember the last queen that was seated beside a king in the city of Susa? Who was she? Esther. The Jewish queen. This could have been Esther, some scholars think. This might have been Esther herself. If not, Artaxerxes may have been Esther's child, this king. If not, Artaxerxes would have known that his father's favorite queen was Esther, the Jewish queen. What God did with Esther was to prepare this moment so there is a king and a queen that are friendly to the people of God. They are ready to serve. They are ready to say, well, of course we want to honor Esther's legacy. Of course we want to honor what's gone before us. I mean, you and the, the Persians and the Jews have always gotten along. And you Jews have served faithfully us as Persians. Man, would it be said of us as Christians in our workplaces like that? That we would earn the favor so that the people that come after us wouldn't have a bad name for Christians, but a good name. Not that we compromise, not that we back down. Because you have to remember, sometimes when you stand for the right thing, you get killed. In this circumstance, God's chose to preserve them. And see, most of the Jews, they preserve... 
Nehemiah knows he's going back to a mess. He could stay very comfortable as the king's cupbearer. And he's like, I can't do it. I have to go back. And here's why this is important. In Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you, the place I choose to put you. Wherever I tell you to go, you go. Wherever I tell you to be, you be. That's what Abraham did. And then it said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. By the way, the three major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all still trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. That's a lot of people that have Abraham on them. God has been faithful to this covenant and this promise, and it was an unconditional promise, unlike the Mosaic covenant that had conditions. And then he says, look, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Artaxerxes knows this. He understands that by blessing God's people, blessing is going to come back on him. He understands that you don't mess with God's unconditional covenant and those he's called. Be very careful. And he makes the right choice. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire who decided they would not respect the children of Abraham, they would not treat them well, and they were annihilated by the Persians. Nehemiah goes on to say, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Aspa, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. Nehemiah is going to build a home for himself that he doesn't live in. (laughs) He's only going to be in town for a couple of months, and then he's gone to go back to do his job as a slave. You see, he's building a house because he understands that when God comes back, I want to have a place. (laughs) You see, Nehemiah has incredible faith, and he's even asking the God, "Well, well, since I have your favor, could I request these things from you? Which is amazing. He doesn't demand it. He says, if it pleases you, can I do it? Jesus told his disciples this, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. In Revelation 5, it says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And I cried and cried. John is weeping here in Revelation because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. He was told, Stop crying. And then he says, the lamb that was slain is going to open the scroll. In Revelation 21, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, the grace of God. We didn't build it. He built it and brought it back to earth. Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband, then I heard a loud voice from this throne say, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. That's the fulfillment of Jeremiah. It's Nehemiah's longing, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And look at this, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. He will comfort. He is Yahweh who comforts. 
Death will no longer exist. Grief and crying and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And that's why we have this book. Let me ask you, do you feel troubled and disgraced? Are there things in your life, do you look around at our world and see trouble and disgrace? I do. And our response should be as people brokenness and telling people the truth. To look at them and say, look, I know there's mourning. There's always going to be mourning, but you can be strengthened because that's what Nehemiah says in the last part. He says, the king granted my requests for I was strengthened by my God graciously. In other words, the grace of God strengthened me. The only way you're going to get through this life and the only way you're going to find a path through the trouble and disgrace is if you embrace the grace of God. That's it. It's when you recognize that I don't deserve anything. I didn't work hard enough. I didn't do enough. I don't deserve anything. It's only God's grace that strengthens me. When I realize I don't deserve anything, I can't earn anything, I'm a loser, I'm a mess. When I finally realize that, God says, now I can extend you the free gift of grace. Because you understand what a relationship with me is like. And when he does that, then we respond in works because now we're so grateful, that's the word grace, we're so full of grace and gratitude for what God did that we couldn't do for ourselves. then now I want to obey him. I want to do what he asked me to do. I even want to ask big things from him and others. <laughs> I want to look and say, hey, thanks for having your favor. I was also wondering if I could have a letter to like steal all the forest. Would that be okay? <laughs> that's bold. That's bold. But Nehemiah is like, if God's favor is here, then I'm going to see how far his favor will go. He didn't ask the king to go do it for him. That's often what we do. Well, God, if I have your grace, then you're just going to do it, right? And I can sit on the couch, and your grace will just come, and it'll just fix everything. No, we participate in grace. We respond to grace. We don't earn it. We just say, thank you. Nehemiah is saying, thank you, king. Thank you, king. Thank you, king. Thank you, God. Thank you. That's what we do. So I ask you this morning, what are you being strengthened by? You find strength in your bank account, strength in your comfort, strength in your ease, strength in your intelligence and your knowledge, strength in your mental health. What what do you find, what strengthens you? You know what strengthens me day in and day out? The grace of God. That when I, when I mourn, when I am broken, when I see the mess that people are in, when I see what happens, it's me coming back to the grace of God, not giving him my demands, but just saying, God, help me to be faithful to what you've called me to do. And when I do that, he wipes every tear from the eye. And he says, I've got a plan for you. It, it may not be the plan you think that's great because when you go back, he's going to rebuild the gates and the walls, and then he's going to have to go back and be a slave. And then while he's being a slave, he finds out the people went the other way and they're being disobedient and stupid again. And he has to ask a king again in embarrassment, like my people are idiots, I gotta go back and do this again. That's like the story of the Christian life. That's who we are as believers. And Jesus did exactly what Nehemiah did. He came from heaven to earth. 
He gave up his right to become a slave for us, to die on a cross, to have resurrected life, to ascend to heaven. And he says, someday I'm going to come back and make things perfect and right. And we wait for that moment. Let me ask you, have you surrendered your life to him? Have you surrendered to his strength and grace? And if you haven't, why not? And if you have, you can have the joy like Nehemiah of in the midst of mourning, knowing that there's joy. That's the beauty of this book. And we're going to see Nehemiah then go into the city and we're going to see him get really practical. And if you want some really practical stuff to look at, we're going to see it. He gets really practical about how to help people follow God and how to help them rebuild their lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you for this story in Nehemiah. I thank you for the fact that he was faithful to you. He was faithful to be a slave. He was faithful to do what, quite honestly, most of us would just complain about. We, we want nothing to do with. And Lord, when, when he heard about the devastation and the problems that, that he was having, his heart was broken. And Lord, I just confess that so often my heart is broken for the state of Christians and the state of the church in our world. Lord, the church is a joke. Your people are a joke so often. The, the, there's so many out there that are just using you, manipulating, that are they're just looking for the easy and they're not surrendered to you. And God, my heart breaks for those people. That they don't see that the pathway of being poor in spirit and mourning and, and the pathway of that beatitude life that we read about, Lord, that that's the path to, to understanding who you really are and living for you. God, I thank you that throughout the Bible, you keep saving your people when we don't deserve it. So we can trust you to save us and have grace on us when we don't deserve it. I thank you that if we're in trouble and disgrace, that you offer hope and grace. You offer your hope and your grace when we have that trouble and when there's nothing but disgrace that stares us in the face. Lord, I thank you for that. And Jesus, thank you that you became the ultimate Passover, that you, through your blood, passed over all sin. You just ask us, like Nehemiah, to surrender to you, the king. And if we'll surrender to you and we'll have the heart of Nehemiah, we'll hear from you what Nehemiah heard from his king, which is, yeah, go. Go build into people's lives. Go make an impact. How can I help you? Let's do this together. How long do you think it'll take? And our response is, well, the rest of my life, because it's all yours. We thank you and praise you this morning in your name.